We are in a series, the title of which is behind me on the screen, Centering on Ministry. And we have for several weeks been trying to prepare ourselves as a congregation for the move into the building that God has allowed us to acquire as of May the 10th. So for those of you that are here for the first time, this is kind of an unusual set of sessions for us. Normally, in Discovering God, which is what this hour is called, we're going through a series that we've invited friends and neighbors and all of that too as a form of outreach, but also edification for our people. But because we are moving, relocating, and there's a lot to do to prepare for that, we are spending these weeks to prepare ourselves in a number of categories for that important move. And so we've called this series Centering on Ministry. The reason that we've called it that is that we have for many years been referring to the building that God would eventually give us and now has as not a church but a ministry center, a place where ministry occurs, a place where training for ministry occurs, and then we go out as the church scattered to engage in ministry for which we've been trained. So we call the building a ministry center. And if you've been around here for any length of time, you'll hear our people talk about the ministry center. That's why. So as we prepare to move into that now, we want to focus ourselves on the task of ministry and preparing ourselves to be able to hit the ground running, as it were, when we move in either later this year or early, early next year. And in preparation for that, starting several weeks ago, we looked at the centrality of the church to God's mission uh, as given in Scripture. And we looked specifically at what that mission is. And I reminded you that the theme verse for our church is Colossians 1.28 that says, We proclaim Christ, we proclaim Him, teaching and admonishing everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect or mature in Christ. So that has been the theme verse for our church since our inception 11 years ago. And in order for us to move people from where they are to where they need to go, maturity in Christ, we need to have a robust discipleship program so that someone can enter the ramp, enter the roadway as they move to maturity at any point And we can take them from what they know or don't know, what they've experienced or haven't experienced, help them fix what's wrong, strengthen what's right, and move them toward maturity in Christ. And I shared with you then some of the things that we're looking to implement in order to make that happen. So we've looked at the centrality of the church and the mission of the church. We looked at the beauty of the church as well. From a scriptural standpoint, why the the church and the ministry that takes place in it should be beautiful to all of us because Christ is the head of the church. Because of those who comprise the church, redeemed and gifted people from all backgrounds and all walks of life. And then we've been looking at preparing the church in a number of ways in order now to make this move into our ministry center. Preparing administratively, preparing spiritually, preparing mentally, kind of as I've used the phrase, getting our game face on so that we're ready to move into the building. And then beginning last week, we looked at the category of preparing ourselves evangelistically. And we looked at Colossians chapter 4 and the teaching of Scripture there that tells us that we need to be alert and watchful. 
and that we need to pray for opportunities and for boldness and that we need to be wise in the way that we behave toward outsiders and that our conversation, Colossians 4 and verse 6, needs to be always full of grace, seasoned with salt so that we may be able to have effective witness, evangelism to those God has sent us to reach. And I want to continue over the next few weeks now as we center on ministry, preparing to move into the building God has given us, looking at the things we need to do to be ready to reach our community as effectively as possible evangelistically. So that's what we're going to do today. And I've asked you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2. And we will look at that in a bit. Before we do, I just want to pause for a moment. We're going to bow in prayer and especially pray for uh, our, our brother Mike Bradley, who's here, and uh, Mike's parents are here as well, and uh, we're delighted that they're here. Uh, you all know that we had uh, Lori's funeral yesterday, and a God-honoring funeral indeed for a lovely saint of God who is now with, with him, but in an unexpected way. That was just yesterday, and Mike and the girls and Mike's parents are, are here today. And I won't say too much more because we'll all get emotional. But I just want to say thank God that you all have the wisdom to see that the community of faith is where you need to be at this time of need. And we're delighted, thrilled that you guys are here. And we know, as I said in the funeral service yesterday, that God is going to take care of you, take care of your children, as he did for me when I lost my dad when I was 11. And I had a nine-year-old younger brother, and he took care of my mom, and he took care of us. And Alicia is 11, and Audrey is nine. And so we're in, we've been in very similar circumstances. So I can tell you from personal experiences that God will take care of you. So let's bow, ask the Lord to do that, and bless our time together, all right? Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather as your people on this Lord's Day. We thank you for the blessings that we have experienced already, singing praise to you and being encouraged from Psalm number 23 by our brother. And Lord, we have been reminded again that you are indeed the good shepherd. You are the shepherd king, that nothing, because you are the king, happens in your world outside of your sovereign control. And all of the things that happen, the good, the bad, the difficult, the easy, whatever they are, they are within your control and always under the purview of your comfort and your care for your children. And Lord, that is very real to us at this time of heartache, with the loss of our, our dear sister. And we ask, Lord, that you would sustain Michael and Alicia and Audrey and the rest of their family in the hours, just hour by hour, day by day, week by week, as you did for me so many years ago, as you have done for your people always, as you promise that you always will, I pray that those promises will be very real and that you will use us as your people, that you will use your word and your spirit to be of great comfort to them at this time. Lord, we thank you that we could gather for this hour now to focus our attention upon the fact that we are in the stream of an eternal purpose that you have given to bring glory to yourself through your church, and you've allowed us to be a part of that mission, that process in your church. And Lord, you've given us a place to carry out ministry. More effectively, we believe. We want to do that, but we need to prepare for that. And so we ask your blessing this week and in the weeks to come as we try to make this transition in the most effective way possible to bring honor and glory to your name 
as we reach all of those that you bring into our sphere of influence. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If we are going to be effective evangelistically when we move into our new ministry center, then we are going to have to do what we saw last week from Colossians chapter 4. We are going to have to look for opportunities from people that we know, people we used to know, people we would like to know. Make those contacts. Pray for boldness, as Paul told us. Pray for credibility, that our lives would match the message that we are proclaiming. And practice grace in our speech toward those that we are trying to reach. But we're also going to have to do this now. If we're going to be effective, we're going to have to know the audience that God has called us to reach. As we move into Trenton and into our ministry center, we need to know the audience before whom and for whom we engage in this evangelistic ministry. And so today I'd like for us to think about who the audience is, who the, who the audience before whom we do this and for whom we do this are. The reason I've had you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4 is because it tells us the audience, the ultimate audience, for whom we engage in this evangelistic ministry and everything that we do. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, it's significant that you understand that this is the last chapter of the last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. So he is in prison as he writes to his protege, Timothy. And he's writing his second letter to him. And it's the last letter that he would write. He knows it's the last letter that he would write. That he has been given a sentence of execution and he will soon be executed. And he says, therefore, in those famous verses, beginning in verse 6 through 8, he says, the time of my departure is at hand. And he says, I have fought the good fight. And I have run the race. And therefore there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord shall give to me, but, but not to me only, but to all of those who love his appearing. Paul knows his time on earth is short. And he's writing to Timothy to pass the mantle of leadership to him as he departs the scene now, and Timothy carries on the work that Paul has begun. That's why he says in chapter 2 and verse 2, for instance, Timothy, the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, you now pass those on to reliable men who will be able to teach others also. I'm passing off the scene. I'm passing the baton to you. And Timothy, you are going to have to engage in passing the baton on to another generation who can in turn pass it on to still another generation. He's preparing to leave. Last chapter, then, of the last letter that he would write. So what do you think is most important to him as he writes these final words? I mean, whatever the guy says at this point is really important. Am I right? These are his final words. And here's what he says, beginning in verse 1. In the presence of God... And of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you, Timothy, this charge. Preach the word. 
So whatever else Paul could have said to Timothy, at this moment, with a short time left, he has chosen to say to Timothy, whatever you do, preach the word. And he goes on to say, be prepared when it's in season and out of season, when it's easy and when it's difficult. You continue to, to preach the word. And in order for Timothy to understand how solemn this instruction is, he reminds him in verse 1 that I am giving you this charge in the presence of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we think about who the audience is, as we go to carry out ministry now through our ministry center, first and foremost, the most important person in that audience is God himself. And the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, are engaged in but also witnessing what it is we do. It's a solemn charge from the great apostle to his protege. It has a number of practical ramifications for us then. You see, friends, the ultimate audience, the ultimate audience is never, ever the human audience. The ultimate audience is always God. And therefore, the, person that, the persons that, that we seek to please first and foremost are not the human audience, but God. Now, think with me for a moment. Would that not radically affect the way people go about ministry? If they thought that the most important audience that I have is God himself before even these people. I now need to think about how I carry out this ministry. Is it done in a way that's God-honoring? Is it done in a way that's consistent with his character and what he has revealed about himself in Scripture? Is it done simply to placate the community and the audience and to meet their expectations? And I'm convinced that we have churches all over America that have forgotten that the ultimate audience and the most important audience for everything that we do in ministry and in life is God himself, God the Son, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And dear friends, as we prepare to do ministry effectively, let us be reminded that the first audience for our ministry is God. So if we're going to be effective, we need to know our audience. And the first audience is God. But then there is indeed the community. There is the human audience. And as we are going to know the human audience, there are some things we need to know about them in order for us to be effective. We need to know what they need. And I want to add a word to that. We need to know not what they think they need, not what they feel they need, but what we know they need because the ultimate audience has told us what they need. So if you're writing that down, you might write down not just what they need, knowing what they need, but knowing what they really need. And you see, what people really need is not always, in fact, not even often, what they think they need or what they feel they need. So if we are going to know our audience, we need to know what they need what they really need. So, let's think about that. Let's think about that scripturally. 
what do they really need? And one way for you to get your arms around it, that's been helpful for me at least, is to think about the way the Bible describes humanity, individuals, and the personalities that our God has given us as we're made in His image. He has made us personal beings that reflect His personality back to Him in that we are mind and emotion and will, in that we can think and we can feel and we can act. God is a personal God who thinks and feels and acts, and He has made personal beings who reflect personally back to Him, made in His image, in that we have those capacities of mind and emotion and will. Now, that being the case, what do fallen people, sinful people, all over, but in particular in the community to which we are going, what do fallen creatures, still made in the image of God, still having the capacity of mind and emotion and will, what do they need now? most? Well, what do they need in terms of their intellectual capacity, in terms of their thinking faculties? What they need most is truth, is it not? They need to learn God's truth. They've been made in the image of God with the ability to think, with the capacity to use their their minds, which are not just their gray matter, Not just what's contained in the cranium. That's the physical part of the mind. But there's the spiritual part of the mind, the spirit. And they together in Scripture are the mind. And we have the capacity to think. But we think in distorted ways because we are fallen. Because we believe lies. Because we believe falsehoods. And so as we think about the audience that we're called to reach and the fact that they have the ability to think, that they have the capacity of mind, and intellect, what they need, would you not agree, is truth. First and foremost, people need God's truth. And that's why Paul says, Timothy, God is going to hold you responsible. And I give you this solemn charge then before him to preach the word. Give truth to those who have believed lies and who think in distorted ways. So as we go, we will be a church, as we have been, and by God's grace always will be, a church that tells the truth, that tells the truth directly but lovingly as well, speaking the truth in love, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15. So what does the audience need? It needs for its intellectual fallenness in each truth. But then it also has the capacity they have, as we have, the capacity to feel, of emotion. And what do and what do they need? They need to see what true biblical love looks and acts like. You see the world has this distorted approach to love. It is simply emotion. The Bible teaches it involves emotion, but it's rooted in a commitment based upon truth to do what's in the best interest of others. And so our our community needs to see that played out in the interactions between the community of faith that God has called us to be. 
And that's why over and over God tells us to be engaged with, with one another and to pray for one another and to bear one another's burdens and to forgive one another and to serve one another and to pray for one another. On and on it goes. And you remember Jesus said this, it is by this that all men will know that you are my disciples if you what? If you love who? You love one another. And so what does, what does the community need as we, as we know our audience? What do they, what do they really need? <laughs> they really need truth. And they really need an accurate picture of what true love is. And they also need purpose. Purpose. You see, people were made by God to be able to act, to be able to do with what He has given them. But because people have rejected truth, they therefore don't know what love is, and they therefore have no earthly idea why they're here and what they're supposed to do. They don't have a proper purpose. People live aimless lives. And you see the destruction, you see the consequences of people living aimless lives all over the landscape, do you not? You see it throughout a fallen world, and indeed in the community and surrounding communities that God has sent us to reach. And so people need to hear God's truth and be taught God's truth. And they need to, they need to love and be loved. And they need to know why they are here, what their ultimate purpose is. Or to put it another way, people need to learn and love and live. Now, does that sound familiar to anybody? Good. Some people are nodding their heads. Good. Thank you. Because otherwise, I quit. (laughs) But the mission statement for our church is, Community Baptist Church exists to help people learn about God, love Him and others, and live for His purpose. And see, friends, we didn't just pull that out of a hat. People are made in the image of God with those capacities. And God has called us to reflect Him back to Him and to a fallen world that has distorted what He is about and are suffering the consequences such that we need to know our audience and their desperate need to learn and love and live for God's purpose. And so we know that, don't we? We know that about a fallen world. We know that about our culture. We know that about Woodhaven and about Trenton. And so we are going to shape our our programs. As we have done, we will continue to do shape all of them such that they are centered around those three objectives of helping people to learn about God and love Him and others and live for His purpose. So as we know our audience, we need to know what they really need, and they really need that. But we also need to know this. We need to know how it is that that audience that we're called to reach, we need to know how they perceive us. So we're called to do that. If you just stop at that, we're, we're going we're to preach it at people. We're going to tell them the truth, and they can like it or lump it, take it or leave it. There it is. No more blood on my hands. Ball's in your court. But the Bible teaches more than that now in terms of, the methodology in terms of how we go about doing this now. 
helping people learn and love and live. We now need to know how it is that we are perceived by these people that we are called to whom we are called to minister so that we can remove any unnecessary obstacles and be able to give them what God has called us to proclaim. We need to know our audience, including how it is that they perceive us. Now you say, really? Should we care about how they perceive us? Does the Bible say we should care about how they perceive us? Well, turn uh, to Titus chapter 2 as an example. Just a couple of pages over, you were in 2 Timothy 4. So Titus chapter 2. And in Titus 2, you've got a number of instructions about interactions amongst different categories of people in God's church. So you've got instructions for older men and older women to teach younger men and and younger women. And you've got instructions down in verse 9 about, about slaves. As we apply this to our setting, it would be instructions to employer, employees in the setting of their employment. And I want you to notice a few things that are said. Verse 4, well, start in verse 3. Teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands. Now, we're going to read that last phrase. But all of that is for a purpose. And the last phrase in verse 5 gives the purpose so that, here's why all of that needs to be done, so that no one will malign the Word of God. You see, friends, it matters how it is we are perceived. God has chosen for his own reasons to use us as part, an integral part of the process of reaching people with the gospel. And the the most important component of that process is the gospel message itself, to be sure. But if it were only the message, God could just drop that out of the sky, couldn't he? Or he could do sky writing if he wanted to. But Almighty God has chosen people, us, to interact with other people to proclaim this message. And he says several times in Scripture that it matters how you act. It matters how you're perceived as you carry that out. And so live it in a particular way so that no one will malign the Word of God that you're called to proclaim. But then he goes on to tell slaves, or in our context, employees, Verse 9, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them. Now, let me just stop here. Any employees feeling guilty at this point? I'm just saying. I mean, really, from a biblical standpoint, you say, well, I'm not a slave. Exactly. You got it better than a slave. So if slaves were required to do this, how much more those of us who are under the authority of our employers to be respectful and to be trusted, showing that they can be fully trusted 
but here's why. Here's the purpose statement. So that, all of that is necessary for this. So that in every way, they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. God makes it clear that the message matters most, but the messenger matters too. And if you stop at just the message, I gave them the message, I may be mean as a snake, I may be ornery, I may be actually just a real jerk. And there are lots of Christians, let me just, just being real, there are lots of Christian jerks out there, aren't there? That in the name of Jesus malign his character in the way they go about what they do. And God says it matters. So we need to concern ourselves with how it is that we are perceived. And if you stop at just the message, you will diminish your audience, the, the, the scope of your audience. The truth is you will have fewer people who care to listen at all to you if that's the way you go about it. So we've got churches that have forgotten the solemn charge that God is the ultimate audience. But we've also got churches on the other extreme that say that all that matters is that I proclaim the truth, not how or whether or in what manner I interact with the community that truth is intended for. And I'm telling you, if you only do that, if you only say we preach the truth and you do not give any concern to whether or not the Word of God is maligned or whether or not the teaching about God our Savior has been made appropriately attractive because lived out as it is intended. If you do not do that, you will diminish the scope of those that you are able to reach. And we have churches dying, literally dying, because of that. Well, friends, we're not, by God's grace, going to do either of those. (laughs) We're not going to forget that God's the ultimate audience and that we are to preach the word and it is to be primary. And at the same time, we're going to remember that he has chosen us as his ambassadors. Frankly, I don't know why. (laughs) But that was his call. And he's decided to use us. Among the myriad of ways he could have gone about this, he's chosen us. We're an integral part of the process. Therefore, it matters how we go about it and how we are perceived. And you know, if we, choose, if we were to choose, and we're not, so I'll be done with this in a minute. But if we were to choose to take that approach that I'm telling you, I know churches are doing, I've seen it. I know of churches that are doing this. We preach the truth, just let the chips fall where they may. We don't care how it is we're perceived. And as a result, churches are dying. It's not that those people you could have reached won't be reached. They just won't be reached by you. And you know, all things being equal, I'd like them to be reached by us. You know why? Because I know us. And I know we have a robust discipleship program to take them from not only being reached with the gospel initially, but to move them to maturity in Christ. I think they would be very very well off if they were to be reached by us and discipled through us. And so I don't want any obstacle to that. And I trust you don't either. And so we have to be proactive, to put it put it this way. We have to be proactive. That is, you know, when when Paul says in Titus 2 
and verse 5, so that no one will malign the word of God. He's not saying anybody has. Did you notice that? He says, so that no one will. Because if you don't do this, in all likelihood, someone will. So be proactive about it before it even happens. But we need to react as well to what we know people perceive about us. They already perceive about us. You see examples of this with Paul and his five defenses of his ministry and of the gospel, five of them, in the book of Acts. You see an example of it in Acts chapter 26 when he stands before King Agrippa. And he gives an account of himself and he gives an account of Christianity and the gospel message. And there Paul is, is talking to his audience in a way that takes into account how he is perceived by them. And so he speaks in a way that reacts to that, that seeks to counteract false notions that the audience have, has about him. So, does the audience we're trying to reach, guys and gals, do they have any false notions about us? You know, what about me as a preacher? What's their false notion about me? He wants my money. I mean, they think that, don't they? We know they think that. Where'd they get that? They watch TV. They watch Joel Olstein. They watch Joyce Meyer. They watch Kenneth Copeland. They watch T.D. Jakes. Have I hit your preacher yet? Okay. They watch these prosperity preachers, the prosperity gospel, which is a false word. They watch them. And they see how they live and what they want and what they emphasize. And they, therefore, assume you're associated with them. That's what they think. And so we need to react to that. And we do, and we have been, and we will. And when people come, when God brings people here, we say, we don't want your money. We, we want you. We want God's best for you. So we think about how it is that we are perceived, and we, and we counteract that. And there are a number of those ways in which we are perceived that need to be counteracted. So then what are they? Well, this church is, I mean, this is what we really are. We are an independent, fundamental, Baptist church. Independent, fundamental, Baptist church. So let's break that down a little bit. How's that perceived? And let's just start with, you know, let's just start with one some of us are familiar with because it's made them in the media for years now. Just start with the middle, independent, fundamental. Now, I don't want to raise a uh, show of hands here, but when was the last time you went and in talking to somebody at work or in your neighborhood or in your family, you said, I want you to know I'm a fundamentalist. You're laughing because you haven't done that. There's a reason you haven't done that, isn't there? That reason is, is, should not be because that there's actually anything wrong with what fundamentalist has represented, if you understand that historically. I'm going to talk about that. There's actually some very beautiful things that are represented and important things represented by the name fundamentalist. 
but it has been co-opted, hasn't it? The reason you don't say that is because when you say you're a fundamentalist, the person will call 911. They want you searched for a bomb. Now, it's only, you know, I'm only half joking about that, right? But why is that? Because we're in a culture in which the particular term has been used in context in which that is constantly the impression that people get. Because there are all kinds of fundamentalists and fundamentalisms. And, of course, the most troubling right now is, is Islamic what? Fundamentalism. We know the, the jihadists did not coin the term fundamentalist. But it's been hijacked by the media and applied to crazy people. And when the average guy and gal in Trenton and in our culture hears fundamentalist, they are immediately associating you with crazy people. So I would recommend that you don't hang that out there. You know, my pastor was saying last week you should have been there. How cool. We are independent, fundamental Baptists. You will lose your audience. But the truth is, if understood properly, I am, and I'm convinced that most of you are. You've been in for a long time, even if you didn't really know it, an independent, fundamental, and of course you've known you're in a Baptist church. So we are that, but most of us... Don't, don't say it. Truth is, there's a lot of things that I don't just hang out there, and we're going to quit here in a moment. There's a lot of things I don't just hang out there <laughs> for the average person. One, because it would be completely misperceived. And really, they have no earthly idea what any of that means. I mean, if I gave my full thing, I would be an independent, fundamental, Baptist, Calvinistic, premillennial, pre-tribulational, presuppositional, young earth creationist, lordship salvation, non-KJV only, which means I'm NIV positive. <laughs> Non-legalistic, which means gospel-centered. And there's a whole list of these things, right? There's a whole bunch of these things that I actually subscribe to. And many of you do as well, even if you don't know the terms. But the truth is, hanging a term out there that is one, negatively perceived, or secondly, completely not understood, isn't doing anybody any good, is it? And so wisely, we don't do that. So, if you go by the ministry center sometime this week, You'll see a sign that's out in the yard that used to have the name of the elementary school on it. They've now removed that, and we will replace that with our name. So let's take a quick vote. How many are in favor of making sure that everybody knows that we are fundamentalists on our side? Dude, when you get that sign together, make sure you put in big, bold letters, fundamental. Let's get neon for that. Now, we're laughing because the truth is we think that would be foolhardy. Because we know how that is perceived and how we are perceived matters. And we need to think wisely about that. Then. I am a fundamentalist. But I don't want to confuse anybody who has been besieged by the co-opting of that term as it's been applied to people that have nothing to do with me.
So how do we do that? How do we care about how we're perceived, including how we're described, so that we can be most effective in the community God has called us to reach? So I'm going to tell you next week where fundamentalists came from and how it went south. Have you all noticed that every week, right at the end of my talk, the vending machines turn off? (laughs) This is how you know it's the end. Because you can hear me. I can finally hear him. I heard that last sentence. That was a great last sentence. I'm really glad I can. Anyway, next week, we'll talk about where fundamentalists really came from, where it went south, and how we can navigate that, and how we can prepare ourselves to be perceived accurately. That's what we need, friends, accurately. Not necessarily favorably. You get that? I mean, you can strip all that stuff away, but the gospel is still offensive. And we still may be perceived unfavorably by those that are perishing because the preaching of the cross is foolishness, says 1 Corinthians 1, to those who are perishing. We still may be be perceived unfavorably. But if we're going to be perceived unfavorably, I want it to be on the basis of the message of the gospel that we proclaim. So we'll begin to talk about that next week. Let's ask the Lord to keep us safe this week as we serve him. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to gather in your presence and with your people to think about important issues related to the work to which you have called us. We ask you, Lord God, to give us wisdom in the weeks and the months ahead now as we transition into this new phase of your ministry. And Lord, we ask you to go with us this week. We ask you to grant us safety. But also, Lord, grant us a a constant reminder that we are your ambassadors, that we represent the Lord Jesus Christ in the spheres of influence to which you have called us to serve. We ask you to bring us back safely next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.